welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Dana Osman, here with my friend Chavruta Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masach Nedarim, daf Pei Hei, page 85. Well, we're really in our final stretch of uh, Masach Nedarim, which is pretty exciting. Uh, please make sure to check our Facebook page and our uh, WhatsApp group for information about our CM, which will take place, God willing, on January 22nd, 10 a.m. East Coast time, 5 p.m. Israel time. We uh, look forward to hearing what everybody's thoughts were about this particularly unusual um, Masachat. I think more than some of the other Masachat and like this one is like not you know, trying to figure out what, what's practical to our life from a halachic point of view. Not about what it's saying about speech, I think has been a little bit more of a challenge than some of the other things uh, that we have learned. Um, I'm going to move on and start quickly with the Mishnah here. Um, and we have a new uh, Mishnah about something that a woman could say. Konem sheni ose alpi abba, right? A woman could say, I will not produce anything for my father, right? Or that it's konem for me. But alpi abicha, or for your father, meaning her husband's father, for alpi achi, or for my brother, alpi achicha, or for your brother, right? Eno yechol hafer. So this would be under a category of types of nadarim that the husband is actually not allowed to revoke because it, it doesn't affect the relationship between the husband and the wife. Right. This is about her relationship with either her father or her father-in-law or her brother or her brother-in-law. It's a little interesting to me that um, the the examples are all male here. Like, what would it mean if she said this about her mother or her sister? I do think there's some gender something at play here without the Gemara saying it, without the Mishnah saying it completely explicitly. Um, if she says, She'ini osa alpicha. Right. If she says, um, I will not produce anything for you. And remember that wife is obligated to do certain things for her husband. There is work she's obligated to do. Uh, going back to some of the previous Masachta that we had in Seder Nashim. Right. Uh, then we say, The Tanakam is telling us that he doesn't even need to revoke it because it's not even a nether that could take place because she has to do what she um, needs to do to be married, right? In other words, that's an obligation once Kedushin happens, once she's married, and therefore it, he does, it's, 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 it's a void vow. Like it, it doesn't, it, because she's obligated to do those things for her husband. However, Rabbi Akiva comes and says, Rabbi Akiva, Mir Shama Tadif Alav Yoter Min Hara'uilo. So Rabbi Akiva, and I feel like it's such a different way to view marriage and life, and Rabbi Kiva tends to always take sort of an optimistic point of view, right? He still should revoke the vow because maybe she's actually going to produce more than she's required to make for him. You know, maybe she's very industrious, right? And, you know, she's going to make more than she needs to do. There's sort of like a fixed amount of what she's obligated to perform for her husband. And, you know, anything above that, that's what he would not be entitled to. And I like this because in a way, Rabbi Akiva sort of like again, introducing a little bit of agency to the woman in the sense of not everything she does necessarily goes is for the marriage or goes directly to her husband. Um, and so therefore, he may actually come to benefit something that wasn't really his, and that wouldn't be allowed. And that's why he still should revoke it. And then we have Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, Omer, Yafer, Shama Yigrashana, Uteha Asura Alav. And so what he says is that he still should revoke it. Because maybe one day he'll divorce her, then the vow would actually take effect, right, if he didn't divorce her, because she's no longer obligated to produce anything for him. So then that nether takes effect, right? And then 
she would be forbidden to him forever. In other words, if they wanted to remarry, they wouldn't be allowed to be remarried because that vow is in effect and you cannot marry somebody, right? A husband would not be allowed to marry a woman. A man would not be allowed to marry a woman who he cannot participate or partake in her in whatever it is that she produces. You know, I don't know if this is like sort of a shalom biasy approach, right? Like he's trying to say like, well, maybe the couple will reconcile because I feel like if she's willing to make that kind of vow, that marriage is not in a good state to begin with. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I can't tell if I like what Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Nuri says or if it's really like, come on, like it, it, this is what you're worried about, like as in case they get divorced, because like we're not in a good, like this is, can't be in a good place already if these are the types of vows that she wants to make or is thinking of making. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's too, we have, you know, the Tanakama, which is saying, you know, doesn't need to revoke it at all. Cause there's no way this vow can take place. Um, and then we have sort of these, you know, other interesting points that Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Nuri bring up about different ways marriages could function. You know, a case of a woman who maybe really does bring a lot to the marriage, even more than she needs to bring. And Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Nuri, who seems to be concerned about sort of this weird set of circumstances where they would get divorced and then couldn't reconcile if they wanted to. Um, I think it's kind of, I, I find these cases to be one of the, again, surprising a little bit. Uh, perhaps you've mentioned this, you know, the, the idea that, oh, I want to say like how it is that his ability to cancel her vows that she's making that are fundamentally against his like his ability to benefit from her, like we're in this kind of the the perhaps the greatest need for him to be able to cancel her vows and also the strangest time that he could because he's got a vested interest. So you would think that that would be kind of an exclusion, right? I don't know if that's, if I'm saying that clearly enough. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's a, a fair way to say it. Okay, so we have some Gemara here. And of course, the Gemara wants to understand exactly how these opinions line up. Amr Shmuel, I'm at the very top of the Gemara, at the very bottom of Amr Um Amr Shmuel, Halacha Karib Yochanan ben Nuri. So Shmuel comes to say that this opinion of Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri that you've just read, Yordina, is the bottom line Psak Halacha. This is the way we pasket. Lemaimer, the Kasavar Shmuel, Adam Magdish, Tavar Shalom, but the Gemara is going to ask on this because the question is does that mean that Shmuel is willing to accept the idea that a person could sanctify or consecrate an item that is not yet in this world? Now, we've talked about this in the past several times, right? The idea that, you, you know, if you don't have the thing yet, we talked about in this concept of like, you know, a chicken that's going to lay eggs, but tomorrow, right? Or uh, a sheep that's going to have, you know, give birth to lambs tomorrow. Then can you really consecrate that that future entity? And we basically have said, you know, most of the time we say you cannot. In this case, we're talking about a case where Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Nuri, according to Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Nuri, right, the vow that she has made is about things that would kick in after the divorce. But She's not divorced. So she like so that question of does it apply or can it apply to something in the future? Does this count then as something that is lobalolam, that it's not yet in effect because the divorce itself is not yet in effect. So then the status is, you know, still it's not even in limbo. Like we're just not there at all. So the Gemara is gonna answer this with a contradiction, raise a contradiction on this. If we have a husband who wants to consecrate or sanctify 
the Masayada, the produce of her, his wife's hands or her earnings, right? And he's talking about the future, right? What's going to happen tomorrow? Is that going to work, right? You would think that, you know, according to this rationale, you would think that he could do it the same way that she can make this vow about what's going to happen in the future after a divorce. But the psak is, the bottom line is that that kind of consecration does not work. He can only do it after she's actually done the, the made the, made the thing that she's going to make or earn the thing that she's going to earn. And I think with this particular example has come up in the past, if I'm not mistaken, the idea that if she produced more than they actually need for their basic use, then Rabbi Meir says that that motar, that extra, does in fact become consecrated. And Rabbi Yochanan Sadlar says, no, it does not. And this is exactly, this, may, depending on how you interpret the mechloket, hinge on this question of can you sanctify, can you consecrate something in advance of it being, you know, before you. And in this case, Shmuel says, and in that case, Shmuel agrees with that the item is not, the future extra produce of her hands is not consecrated, which would imply that he does not accept sanctifying something that is low by low alam, that does not yet exist. So then how can it be that he sides with Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri in this Mishnah with the implication that her vow will kick in for the after the divorce, before the divorce is in effect? So it's a, there aren't that many words here really to explain why it is that there's a question on Shmuel, but it seems that Shmuel's opinion on this Mishnah contradicts himself in this other case. Meaning, Shmuel's conclusion in the other case, the case of consecrated property, seems to be that you can't consecrate something that doesn't yet exist, which again would suggest that he should not accept Rabbi Yochanan, I'm sorry, Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri's position here. You want to say that Shmuel is talking about halacha in accord with Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. He's only talking about it in example of this, you know, this this extra this extra part, right? If there was a surplus, well, that's still going to be difficult, right? Because the bottom line is in the Mishnah, Yerdina, Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri does not agree with Rabbi Akiva, right? And then you know, that implies that the extra earnings would go to the husband and therefore, because they're already his, she meaning he's entitled to them, she can't prohibit them to him like by taking a vow. And then, you know, if that's the point that Shmuel is going to agree with Yochanan ben Nuri, then it seems to be like a little bit, I don't know, like a little bit less impressive of a statement by Shmuel to begin with because there's no real contradiction. I mean, it's beneficial because there's no contradiction to the other case, to the case about concentrate, consecrating the wife's earnings. But I don't know. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't really sound like that's what Shmuel is saying at the beginning of the Gemara here. So here we continue, and then with this we'll close. So let then, if that's the case, right, let Shmuel say the halacha is like Rabbi Yochanan Benuri specifically about that surplus, meaning that's what he should have said, and then we would accept that that's what he meant. Inami, or alternatively, halachic katanakama. Or maybe, really, he's saying, he could have said that the halach is like the tanakama, meaning that the surplus belongs to the husband. Inami, or again, alternatively, halacha karibi akiva. Maybe he really just thinks that the halacha, 
uh, I'm sorry, ain't halachic Rabbi Kiva, right? If his whole point is that not to agree with Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, but to disagree with Rabbi Akiva, whose opinion was that the surplus for sure belongs to the wife, and they're, they're, that's why she could take the vow against it, right? So, so sh- this seems to be like, you know, let's rewrite the words that Shmuel used, and then we can, you know, square his opinion more nicely with the Mishnah. And the Gemara goes on to talk about this apparent contradiction between Shmuel's different rulings in an, in an effort to resolve them, right? Like maybe a konam is different than other kinds of consecration where you can't do something but in this case, there's an exception and Abaye doesn't like that, right? And like there's, there's a back and forth still in this effort to square the words of Shmuel in the Gemara with the opinions as presented in the Mishnah. Yeah, and and this conversation, we'll discuss this a little bit more tomorrow because it's going to continue on to um, tomorrow's death. I mean, this is a typical Gemara type of passage, right? Someone, we take a statement of an Amoa or a Tana and we say, hey, but it seems to contradict or not totally align uh, with what they said elsewhere. And these are the types of Gemaras where the assumption sort of is everything has to align. Like, in other words, they want parallel halachic scenarios to all line up and make sense with each other. Right. Like you couldn't just say, like, you're not allowed to silo it. You're not allowed to say, well, this is just the case, you know, for for this halachic scenario. And this is the sack for this halachic scenario. They all have to sort of be interconnected and aligned with each other. Right. We can't really it doesn't really make sense to say Shmuel, in fact, disagreed with himself. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us, and all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.